Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16. Our text this morning is, again, Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray for God's help that we would understand what He says to us. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, You have spoken to us through Your Son. Let Your written Word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Acts 16, picking up in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome. Yeah, come on up. All right. All right, guys. So I tell your parents that teaching you God's word, that is telling you the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God, Teaching you God's Word is kind of like putting wood into a fireplace. Wood and kindling in the fireplace, little bits of wood in there, by themselves, they aren't really that useful. Ah, but when there's a spark or a match put to that wood, then the light and the warmth grows, right? Well, in the same way, knowing a lot about the Bible knowing all the stories in the Bible, by itself isn't really much use. But when the Holy Spirit sparks faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, then all those stories about Him turn into the light and the fire of love for God and for others. It's like a fire that begins to burn in our hearts. And so that spark that lights the fire, it actually begins with God himself. And that's what we saw in Lydia's story that we just read. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. In other words, she believed. But it was because the Lord himself lit the spark in her heart. And all of a sudden, all at once, she was full of love for God and full of gratitude too. 
so full that she wanted to immediately, like we talked about last week, she wanted to immediately begin using her gift of new life by serving others. Because using that gift was part of the gift, right? And that thankfulness to God for saving us in Jesus, it, it often shines brightly like this. But there are times when the fire of our faith and love, it, it gets kind of small, uh, like this candle here. When, when the flame of our faith is wind blown by troubles, the flame is threatened. Well, you can see the smoke, it's still there. When that happens, can a candle relight itself? Unless it's a magic candle. Yeah, one of those trick candles maybe. But, but ordinarily, it can't light, relight itself. And you know what? Neither can we. So what should we do? We should ask God to restore and reignite that flame. And the good news is, He's happy to do that. He, he loves to do that. After all, long ago, through Isaiah, God promised that a faintly burning wick, like a little candle, He will not put out. And so when you and I feel our trust and our love growing cold, we should go to Him and ask Him to rekindle that flame, the flame of faith and love in our hearts, because the same flame that lit this in the first place can cause it to burn brightly again. The same grace that God showed to us when He first saved us is the grace that God will give to reignite our faith in Jesus and our love for Him. And because our God is pleased to answer such prayers, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, you can. All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seat. Well, if you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 16. As Sam said, our, our text uh, this morning is going to be again Acts chapter uh, 16, uh, verses 11 uh, through uh, 15. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. And at the center of this text... Uh, is this glorious picture of God's effective grace, of, of God opening Lydia's heart to, to believe the gospel, to, to pay attention uh, to what was being said by Paul. And, and we want to focus on that this, this morning. Last Sunday, you'll remember, uh, we, we noticed that, that God's effective grace, the fact that it is God who saves sinners, that it is God who, who opens the hearts of sinners to believe, that, that that doesn't mean that those who proclaim the word don't need to worry about strategy. We saw last week that, that Paul combined a, a, an effective strategy with a, a firm belief in God's effective grace. That was why Paul went to Philippi. It's why he went to uh, the, the place of prayer out by the river. He, he was concerned to be faithful in his proclamation of the gospel, but he wanted to be faithful in the way that was most likely to bear fruit in his particular context. This morning, I want us to focus in on the fact that that. While it is good to uh, seek an, uh, to employ an effective strategy, at the end of the day, that effective strategy is something like the wood and the kindling in the fireplace that Sam was talking about. It's good, but, but, 
ultimately and, and finally, it is only God who can give the growth. And so this morning, I want us to, to focus in on this beautiful picture of God's effective grace in Lydia's life. But, but more than that, I also want us to see that that effective grace ends up producing an effective faith as she immediately becomes a servant of her king. So let's look at this. God's effective grace and then Lydia's effective faith. So first, God's effective grace. We, we see it there beginning in verse 14. Notice what Luke writes. He says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So one of the women that was at this place of prayer, one of this, uh, the, the women who was out by the river, was a, a woman named Lydia. And we're told that she was from Thyatira, and that's a city back in Asia where Paul had, had come from. And it was a city that was known for its purple goods, goods that would have been quite expensive. These, these purple textiles, these purple cloths were, were used to make expensive clothes and other uh, expensive items. And this, is, this was Lydia's trade. She was a, a merchant. She was a seller of expensive imported purple goods. But it does not appear that Lydia was merely in Philippi on a business trip. It appears that she actually lived there. We, we see this in verse 15 when she prevails upon them uh, to come and stay at her house. Uh, she was not just uh, on a business trip, she actually lived there. And so she was the merchant uh, who was selling the goods from her hometown back in Asia there in Philippi. But not only was she a, a wealthy merchant, she was also, we're told, a worshiper of God. Now that means that she was what would have been known as a God-fearer. She acknowledged Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She, she acknowledged Yahweh to be the one true God, and she worshipped him as the one true God, but she had not fully converted to Judaism. Now, we don't know why. There is any number of reasons why someone might not have uh, converted to Judaism and yet acknowledged God to be God. One possible reason is that she would have been perpetually unclean because of her business. Uh, the, the purple goods that were from Thyatira, or at least in part, died uh, with a, a dye that was taken from the carcasses of certain shellfish. Uh, and so uh, it would have been difficult for her to continue her trade and uh, to uh, submit fully to the Mosaic laws, those, those ceremonial laws. But whatever the reason... She was a God-fearer. Uh, she was someone who, who knew God to be God. And she honored him as such. And in doing so, uh, God had, had prepared her to hear the good news of the Messiah. In worshiping Yahweh, she would have heard the Old Testament stories of, of Yahweh and of his, of his promised Messiah. And she, like the Jews, would have been waiting for that Messiah to come, would have been waiting for that, that Savior to appear. So she had been prepared uh, to hear the good news. That's one of the reasons that, that Paul is addressing her. That's one of the reasons that Paul has, is speaking to her. But even apart from all of that preparation, when she does finally hear the gospel, God still has to work. God still has to move. He still has to open her heart to believe. And that's exactly what he does. Look again at what Paul says. Oh, I'm sorry, what Luke says. Luke tells us that when Paul preached, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. 
Now that may mean, uh, in our lane today, we use the language of paying attention with our kids, like especially when they're in school, right? You need to, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to what's, what's being uh, said. And, and sometimes by that we simply mean to, to listen well, to be able to repeat back uh, the facts or the, or the ideas that have been uh, communicated. But in a Jewish context, paying attention, listening well, would have meant something more than just being able to recite back uh, the facts. To pay attention in a Jewish context is to give proper attention. That is, it is to give the attention that is deserved and demanded by that which is being communicated. And what we have to understand is that when the word of God is spoken, as it was spoken by the Apostle Paul, that word deserves and demands to be received as the very word of God. It deserves and demands to be received as God's revelation concerning the salvation that he has accomplished through his Son for all who believe. If you merely listen to the gospel, even if you can recite it back exactly the way the preacher presented to it, if you merely listen to it, you have not paid attention to it well. If you merely listen, you are regarding it as the mere words of men rather than what it truly is, which is the very word of God. And so here in this context, paying attention means paying proper attention. And paying proper attention to the gospel means receiving it as God's revealed truth concerning the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And so when Luke says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, he is saying in effect that he opened her heart to believe. He opened her heart to, to believe and to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he was being presented to her in this gospel. That becomes clear in verse 15. Notice that when she had paid attention to the gospel, when she had received it as the very word of God, she and her household were baptized. And so what we have here then is an example of God's effective grace. This is, this is God affecting the salvation of one who hears the gospel. It's what we sometimes refer to as his irresistible grace. God does not merely offer salvation. He saves sinners. He does not merely invite us to believe. He, he gives the gift of faith to those whom he would save. I know that there are some who are bothered by this, this idea of irresistible grace or effective grace. It, it seems to them to negate our freedom as human beings. It, it seems to negate our, our agency and reduce us to, to mere uh, robots. I mean, after all, if, if God gives the faith and if no one can believe apart from that gift, how can we be responsible for our unbelief? Maybe that's a question you're asking even this morning. Well, if that's the question that's bouncing around in your head, I, I want you to know I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> I actually addressed that question some time ago. I addressed that question in a sermon uh, back last November, a sermon on, on Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And, and you're welcome to, to look up that sermon and to, to listen to it, or you're welcome just to, to schedule a time to talk with me. I'd love the opportunity to, to, to talk about these things with you one-on-one. -on -one. But this morning, I don't really want to spend much time thinking about the problems that God's effective grace raise in our minds. Rather, what I want to do this morning is, is I want us just to revel in the wonder of the reality that God saves sinners. 
I don't want us to, to see this as a problem. I want to see this as, as a wonder of the beauty of who our God is. Our God is a God who makes those who are dead in their trespasses alive together with his Son. Our God is a God who speaks light into the hearts of sinners. Our, our God is a God who gives the gift of repentance and faith to those who are by nature hostile towards him and even his enemies. Our God gives the gift of life to those who by nature love the darkness. And so if you, you struggle with the idea of effective grace, I understand you're not, you're not alone. I don't want to belittle your questions. I just want you to come and talk to me about them later. Because this morning, I want you to simply see the, the wonder of God saving sinners. As I said last Sunday, we are supposed to endeavor to be faithful in the way most likely to bear fruit. That's, that's true. We, we ought to be concerned about employing effective strategies in our ministries. It would not be wise for us to have our Sunday morning worship services at 4 o'clock so that, so that people can worship before they take care of their livestock. I don't think that would go over well in Cleveland today. They, they've done that in previous ages. There, there was a, a time when the church would gather at 4 a.m. So that, so that the church could worship before having to, to tend to the chores that were necessary just to, to maintain life. Similarly, I don't think it would be wise for us to, to hold our, our services in Latin. Again, the church did that for centuries, but I don't think it would go over well. I don't think it would be an effective way for us to, to, to conduct our ministry here today. And those are just some ob obvious examples. Obviously, we need to be wise in the way that we conduct our ministry. We want to choose strategies that are most likely to bear fruit. But remember uh, what Sam said. <laughs> The wood and the kindling in the fireplace cannot light itself. How does the spark come? How are these wise strategies to, to be made effective? Only through the effective grace of God. That's what I want us to see. We, we need to be wise. We talked about that last week. I'm not dismissing that. But whatever our strategies, whether wise or foolish... They are made effective. They bear fruit only through the effective grace of God. God is the one who gives the growth. Only God can make the dead alive. Only God can speak light out of darkness. Only God can open our hearts to believe. If God simply offered salvation, no one would be saved. He must save sinners. And he does. He does. You are here this morning as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ because God gave you the gift of faith. You are here because God worked through whether wise strategies or foolish strategies. Some of you have some pretty crazy stories. Some of, some of the ways that you heard the gospel were, were not necessarily the, uh, the, the wisest strategies. But, but God uses both our wise efforts and our foolish efforts to bring about the growth that only he can give. And that is the wonder and the beauty of God's effective grace. God opened Lydia's heart to believe. And he has done the same for every one of us here this morning who has received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. 
And that glorious truth, that glorious picture of God's effective grace, it has some some significant implications for us today. And I want to focus just on three of them. First, what does this mean, this this idea of God saving sinners? Well, well first, it it means that, that we must thank God for our faith. Have you ever noticed how, how often thanksgiving is mentioned in the scriptures? The, the life of the Christian is to be a life of thanksgiving. And there are any number of reasons for that, but, but at, the, at the first of the list, the, the highest reason that, that we give thanks to God all the time is because our very lives in Christ began with his gift. We ought to thank God for our faith. It's, it's what we see Paul doing regularly in his letters. In the letter that he will write to these Philippians, a, a little bit later, he begins this way. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians had become partners with him in the gospel. Not only had they believed it, but they had become co-laborers with him. But notice, Paul thanks God for their partnership. <laughs> Why? Because he knows that their partnership in the gospel is the fruit of God's effective grace in their lives. He doesn't thank them for their partnership. That would have been appropriate. Wouldn't have been wrong. But, but, at, but at its foundation, Paul understands that their partnership in the gospel is the fruit of God's effective work in their lives. And he thanks God uh, for their faith. He thanks God for their love. He thanks God for the, the work that they are now doing uh, to support the, the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and he does this in all his letters. He, he does something similar in his letter to the Colossians. He does something, again, uh, similar in his letter to the, to the Thessalonians. And as you read through Paul's letters and you, you see the way that he prays, he is all Always thanking God for the faith, hope, and love of the saints. And we should do the same. We ought to thank God for the faith of the saints. We ought to thank God for our own faith. We ought to thank God that he has, he has called us out of darkness into light. We, we, ought to, we ought to continually praise him for, for the effective grace that, that he has lavished on us by his spirit through his son. Because if you have believed, it is because he has opened your heart to believe. If you are here this morning as as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is only because of his effective grace at work in your life. And we ought to thank him for those invaluable gifts. Christians ought to be people whose lives are marked by overflowing thanksgiving. If you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and are now walking in him, you cannot but be thankful. But it's not only thanksgiving that is the appropriate response to God's effective grace. The second thing I want us to see is that that seeing the wonder of God's effective grace also means that we should be constantly returning to him, appealing to him to, to sustain and strengthen the faith that he has given us. Not only should we thank him for it in the first place, but we should appeal to him to to sustain and strengthen that faith. Again, we we see Paul doing this throughout his letters. He's he's always praying that God would continue to to increase the the saints' love, that they would continue to increase their faith, that he would continue to increase their, their hope. He's always praying for the saints in that way. And again, we should do the same. I think we sometimes think that when our faith flags or, or when it begins to, to waver, that it's us to, up to us to restore it. God gave us the gift and now we need, to, we need to take care of it. 
We need to, to cherish it. We need to, to, to fan the, the flame into, uh, into a, a roaring fire. And there, there's something right about that. There's something right about us using the means that God has given us to, to strengthen and sustain our own faith. God has given us his word. He has given us his sacraments. He has given us prayer and, and song and fellowship with his people. He has given us all of these means by which we can strengthen and sustain our, our faith. But let us never forget that it is God who makes those means effective. When you uh, were little, uh, did you ever pray asking God to use this food to nourish your bodies? My, my kids pray that way sometimes, and I'm sure they learned it from me. Like that's, that's a phrase I grew up with, right? But, but when I was a kid, I thought that was the strangest phrase. Why in the world do we need to pray for God to use this food to nourish our bodies? Isn't that what food does? Like I understood thanking God for your food. I understood thanking him that he had provided us with, with food to, to eat. But why did we need to ask him to, to use it to nourish our bodies? I now think I understand better than I did when I was a kid. God has given us food to, to strengthen and sustain our physical bodies, and yet it is God's grace that makes that food effective to do the very work he created it to do. And in the same way, God's word read and preached, God's word sung, God's word prayed, uh, the, the fellowship of the saints, all of these things are, that God has given us to strengthen and sustain our faith, and we ought to make use of them. But we may, may we never think that they work automatically. God uses them. God uses them to strengthen and sustain us. And so we should constantly be going before God and asking him to use the means that he has ordained to strengthen and sustain us in our faith. And this is one reason that I, that I regularly say that it's, it's when you least feel like worshiping that you most need to come to worship. When you, le you least feel like being here, you need to be here the most. You need to come praying that God would use the means of grace to restore and to fan your, fan your faith into a roaring flame. These are the means he's going to use, but let us ask him to use them. And of course, that applies when we begin to seek to minister the gospel not only to ourselves, but to others. And that's, that's our third point. Not only must we, we seek God to sustain and, and strengthen our own faith, but as we seek to share the gospel with others, all of our attempts to, to share the gospel with others must be undergirded and wrapped in prayer for God to pour out his effective grace. You see, as you seek to raise your children in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord, that is beautiful work. That is, that is the work that God has given you to do. But understand this. You can plant and you can water, but it is God who gives the growth. And therefore, as you seek to raise your children in the Lord, do it with prayer. Do it recognizing the, the reality and the beauty of God's effective grace, that it is God who opens hearts to believe. It is God who grants repentance unto life. Pray as you seek to minister. Pray as you seek to, to instruct and discipline your children. And of course, it doesn't apply only to children. It applies to anyone and everyone uh, with whom we seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ. As you seek to share the good news with your extended family, as you seek to, to share the, the good news with your, with your friends and with your neighbors and with your, with your co-workers, whoever it is that, that God has given you opportunity to, to minister to, Yes, minister using the means that he has provided, uh, uh, proclaiming the, the word as it has been revealed. But understand this, that it is God who gives the growth. And therefore, as you minister, pray. May we always undergird our ministry with prayer 
because it is God who makes his means effective for the salvation of the elect. That's the beauty of God's effective grace. God saves sinners. And because he does, we ought to not only thank him, but we ought to pray to him, asking him to make effective all of the, uh, the, 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 the means of grace that he has given us, whether we're using those means to, to strengthen and sustain our own faith, or whether we are using them to, to build and strengthen and sustain the faith of others. But always we must be people of prayer, praying that God would make effective the means that he has provided for building and sustaining the faith of his saints. But the last thing I want us to see then is that not only do, do, does God's effective grace mean that we must rely on him, I also want you to see that, that when we rely on him and when he, he gives us faith, the faith that he gives us is itself an effective faith. The fact that it is God who works to produce faith doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. And we, we see that here in Lydia's uh, example. Look again uh, at, at what we're told. I think the outline in the bulletin says Lydia's effective grace. That's just my typo. Uh, it's supposed to say Lydia's effective faith. Look again at verse 15. Luke, write, Luke writes, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So immediately after uh, Lydia's conversion, she's inviting Paul and his team to, to come back to her house. She's not just inviting them. She is prevailing upon them, Luke says. Now, I think it's easy for, for modern readers to, to misunderstand what's going on here. I think it's easy for, for modern readers to, to think that somehow Lydia is sort of inviting Paul back to his house because he's the celebrity pastor and it will somehow uh, bolster her reputation and her status in the community if, if Paul will stay uh, with her. We, we know that dynamic, do we not? We, we know uh, people who sort of name drop in order to, to improve their own reputation. Well, you know, so-and-so was at my house the other day and, and they just sort of pass it off as if it was no big deal. But, but in, the, in, in reality, they're thinking, oh, oh yeah, people are going to think well of me now. We, we know that dynamic. We, we've seen it too many times. And, and it's easy for us to, to think that that's what's going on here, that, that Lydia wants Paul to come to his ha her house because, because he is the celebrity pastor and it's going to somehow serve her interests for him to be there. But, but I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Uh, rather, remember, Paul's not a celebrity pastor. <laughs> You know, he, he's that to us because he's the author of 13 books in the, the New Testament. He, he's that to us because he is the apostle to the, to the Gentiles. But, but Paul is not a celebrity. In fact, in the very next section, he's about to be arrested and thrown into to jail and beaten by the, the authorities. It's not going to improve Lydia's reputation to have Paul staying at her house. That's not what is going on here. But rather, what is Lydia doing? Lydia is begging for the opportunity to put her considerable financial resources at the disposal of her new king. She knows who Paul is. She knows that Paul is an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And she knows now that, that Jesus Christ is her king and her Lord. And she wants to serve the king's servant with her resources 
as a way of serving her new king. She wants her house to become a, uh, maybe it's a base of operations, or maybe it's just a place of, of respite and recuperation. We're not quite sure exactly what she had in mind, but she wants to use her house to, to serve Paul in his ministry so that she can become his partner in that ministry in Macedonia and even to the ends of the earth. And that is a beautiful picture of effective faith. When God gives us the gift of faith, when he, when he opens our heart to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, it is not merely to secure our inheritance in the coming kingdom. Now, it does that. Don't, don't mishear me. It, it does that. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have an inheritance through Jesus Christ. As, as Peter says in his, uh, the first chapter of, of 1 Peter chapter 1, through Christ's resurrection from the dead, we have been born again to a, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is our living hope in Christ. But faith in Jesus is not merely a ticket to the new heavens and the new earth. But rather, when a, when a person believes in Jesus, he receives him as his Lord here and now. He begins following him immediately as his, as his Lord and King. Faith is a faith that is effective. Faith is a faith that, that works. Faith is a faith that, that denies itself to follow after its king. And because, his king, because the king is a king of love, faith expresses itself in love. Because the king is a, is a king of goodness and shalom, faith expresses itself in works of goodness and shalom. Through faith, we become servants of the king, zealous for his good works, those good works that he has prepared in advance that we should do them. For Lydia, that meant devoting her, her financial resources to support Paul's missionary work. Now, you may not have the, the same financial resources that, that Lydia had. Most of us don't. But we all have resources, we all have, have gifts, and everything that we have can be stewarded into the service of our king. Everything that we have can be used uh, to serve his kingdom and, and his righteousness and his glory. And when you are a servant of the king, you want to. You, you want to use what you have to serve him. Remember, this is, this is not about paying God back. I've sometimes heard people say, well, you know, God did so much for you, you should be willing to do this small thing for him. Have you ever, ever heard that? The Bible never speaks that way. The Bible never speaks in, in terms of paying God back the favor that he's done for you, of, of doing this small thing for him because he's done this, this big thing for you. No, the new life of service, as Sam said last Sunday, that new life of service is part of the gift. It's part of the salvation. You see, you were created in the image of a God who delights to give himself away. You were, you were created in the image of the Father who did not spare his own Son. You were created in the image of the Son who, who did not cling to equality with the Father, but joyfully humbled himself, even to the point of obedience on a cross, that he might give his life as the ransom for many. In that image of that God, in the image of, of the Father, in the image of, of, of Jesus, you were created. And what does that mean? It means that, that, that you cannot find your joy in serving yourself. It means you cannot find your, your joy in, in selfishness. Selfishness is always self-sabotaging. It doesn't work. You, you can't get to joy that way. 
The only joy for, for an image bearer of God is the joy of serving God by serving others. That's the life you were created for. That's the good life. And that's the life that you have been saved to. And so when you see the beauty of Christ, when, when God opens your heart to see the beauty of Christ, that is the life that begins to flow out of that heart that is now bowed to Jesus as king. So it's not about paying Jesus back. Rather, it's about fully enjoying the gift of the salvation that he has given to you. The joy of your salvation, the joy of God's salvation, is found in denying yourself to follow after your son. The joy of your salvation is found in leveraging all of the resources that he has entrusted to you to serve the glory of his name. That's what Lydia knew. That's what Lydia discovered. That's why she's inviting Paul to her house. I want to use everything that is mine to serve my new king. And that is what faith always does. Faith is always effective. And so we see that, that God's effective grace always produces an effective faith. And because God produces such faith, by his own power, through his own mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that you have opened our hearts to, to pay attention to the gospel and to receive and rest upon your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that, that not only have you given us this faith that uh, that we might have an inheritance of the coming kingdom, Father, but that you have given us this faith that we might walk in it now, fully enjoying the life of service to our new king. Father God, I pray that, uh, that you would cause this gospel to, to dwell richly in our hearts and to bring forth abundant harvest in our lives, all to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.